the church. Church is objective. Uh, we don't bow our head to Caesar, right? We bow our our, our head, we, 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 we bend our knee to Jesus. He is our Lord. And so if he said, says to meet, we meet, whether the government says so or not. And we've walked through that uh, multiple times throughout the, the whole book of Acts. I think at the end of this, it'll be somewhere between uh, 50 to 60 sermons in the book of Acts, 28 chapters. And while I'm gone for five weeks, we'll have the privilege of hearing for a few of our guys, our elders here, and uh, preaching through Acts 22 to, I think it's going to be 26, if I remember correctly, and I'll finish up the last two chapters and we'll head into Mark. Not only do we need a vision of the church, but we need a vision of Jesus again. Who is he and why did he come? Uh, you know, some of the things that he says are both loving and comforting, but also, as you know, they're offensive. We want the real Jesus because we cannot worship a false one. That is not uh, okay. I mean, we see that all across the church today. Everyone has an opinion of Jesus. In fact, it says that in uh, Matthew 16, it says that... uh, Uh, Jesus was asking his disciples and saying probably one of the most, I would make an argument, the most important question you can answer while on earth is, who do you say Jesus is? If you get that question wrong, you probably will spend eternity away from him in hell. But if you get it right, you'll have eternity in pure bliss and joy, which is amazing. And really, that's the grace of God, right? When Peter said, you are the son of God, the son of the living God. And Jesus said that the only reason why you know that is because God gave you that revelation, right? The only reason why we have the blinders off today is because we have the grace of God. The only reason why you pick up your Bible and even desire to read it is because of grace. The only reason why you come to church and you desire him more than the world is because of the grace of God, And we know that the church continues to grow, not because of just because of the truth, but because also because of uh, persecution. Throughout history, the church always grew the most when it was the most uh, opposed, when it was persecuted. In fact, uh, we see even today, right now, in our world, the persecution has gone up, hasn't it? It's gone up uh, not only in the world, but also in the church, sadly. But we don't have to worry. As I was even talking to Nicole the other day, it was just my wife, I was just kind of almost in a way complaining about things that are going on and things that are happening around the world. And she says, why are you complaining? It is more clear, the light and darkness. It is more clear today, good and evil, isn't it? How many of you know that the, the, when, when the church is doing supposedly good, when, uh, when, the, when it's peaceful times, the false teachers tend to come in? Where are the false teachers now? When the church uh, is struggling, when the church is being hit and opposed, uh, frankly, the false teachers and the false prophets, they scatter. They want nothing to do with it because they're 
fake. Uh, why would you want to suffer uh, persecution if you don't think it's real? If you're just trying to make a buck or have a following, my goodness, it's probably not the thing to do when you're being persecuted. The church doesn't grow in peace, but in animosity, as we'll see. Throughout the book of Acts, we saw that, that throughout Acts, God used persecution to advance his church. And the reason why we should be actually uh, encouraged in these days is because the church is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And, there, and we could be more encouraged and more encouraged if we have the right view and how God actually grows his church. While we should pray for peaceful times, really what we should be praying is God's will to be done. Because when his will is done, that might include persecution. But we know that when that does come, the church explodes. Though it's not easy, right? If you pick up in Acts 4, don't go there, just stay in Acts 19. You know, we'll just rattle through some of these. But I want to give you at least, a, again, a survey of the book of Acts because it's so easy for us to forget. But in Acts 4, 1 to 31, in Acts 5, the Jews were coming against the newly birthed church, if you remember. The Pentecost Sunday happened, and they were exploding, and it was great. Everybody loves Pentecost. Everybody loves Acts 2. Very few like Acts 4 and 5. And because of that, they even went even after individuals, not just collectively against the church, but they went against individuals, and one of them was Stephen. And then in Acts 5, 27 to 32, they said this, when they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answer, and this is the famous quote, right? We must obey God rather than man. And then in Acts 13, 44 to 52, out of a place of jealousy, the Jews ended up instigating a persecution and created a mob against the church. Then in 14, the gospel destroyed their pagan beliefs and then they ultimately stoned Paul. Then in 16, men lost their uh, divination or their false prophecy, their... uh, medium business, and they threw Paul in jail. They beat him and threw him in jail. Acts 17, the jealous leaders didn't like the message, so a mob formed again in Thessalonica. Then in Acts 17, Paul spoke against the worldly philosophies of the day, and then he ran out of Athens. Acts 18, Paul spoke in a Roman court in Corinth, and then the Judaizers came against Paul and beat their own. And then in 19, today, we'll look at In Ephesus, the city's business was beginning to fall apart because of the gospel, and then a riot exploded. You see a theme? The world doesn't like the gospel. They don't like the truth. And if you're taking notes today, uh, I would encourage you to put the title on the top, and the title on the top is The Cost of Exposing Lies. There is a great cost in exposing lies today in the world, isn't there? You see it all the time. But I want, before we get there, I, we're going to talk about riots today uh, because that's the theme today. 
And riots always break out. Mobs always form when lies are exposed. And so Paul's plan was to keep on going, though. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, faith healing is grand. I mean, people getting healed is a wonderful thing. But he's like, you know what? I'll tell you what's better. Faith enduring is grander. Isn't it? I'll tell you what. You want to see great faith? Forget Benny Hinn. I'll tell you what greater faith is. Greater faith is when people persevere through trials and tribulations. When they come out on the other side saying, I'm still with the Lord. They keep going. In fact, Paul says, I must see Rome. I think that's funny because as we're talking to people in Rome now, planning our summer trip to Italy uh, as we speak, uh, I can't put that in stone per se, but stay tuned uh, we might do something maybe perhaps just very similar to Sweden, if you remember, and hub together in one place and then just blast the country of cannolis. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. Can you imagine the food? The Lord will provide our daily bread every day. Verse 21 says this, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. Paul's desire is that he, 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 he never stops, right? He just wants to keep going despite all what I just had given all from Acts 13, or you make an argument even before then, but all the way through even 19. You know, and the rest of the book of Acts have to do with Paul moving towards Rome. The whole rest of the book of Acts has to do with his time in Rome, and then eventually you know the end of the story, he dies there. The rest of the book of Acts is really the story of Paul being persecuted in trial, and then eventually prison and death. And he knew it. He knew his future. He knew he'd die. He knew chains were awaiting. This wasn't new to him. Really, frankly, this shouldn't be new to any of us. It is costly to expose lies. It is costly to preach the truth. As we'll see more and more in the future, it will become like that. It's not just the countries abroad, but here in our own country. So Paul said, hey, I want to see Rome. I've got to keep going. And having sent into Macedonia two of those ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now listen, you could see again the character of Paul here, and I'm telling you, pay attention to the detail in your Bible. I, I, you know, I remember my mentor telling me one time, there is nothing wasted in the scriptures. If indeed this is the inspiring and errant word of God, then not even the minute detail is to be wasted or overlooked, Right? In fact, it says here that after three years in Ephesus, as you saw, they had a revival. People were burning their magic books, etc. Paul planned to go to Jerusalem, but how many of you guys know, right, Jerusalem is to the east, and Macedonia was more west. He was going the opposite direction to, to go to Jerusalem. I mean, why would he do that if he was trying to take a shortcut? Now, he's trying to get to 
uh, uh, Macedonia and Achaia for a reason, and we pick it up here in Romans 15, 25 to 27. I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they they are indebted to them. Now we know that Jerusalem church was very poor. And this was also, talk about loving your brothers and sisters who are different. These were Greeks taking a collection for the Jewish church. For if the Gentiles had shared in their uh, spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in the material things. In other words, you know, remember when James said, or when John, 1 John in his letter says, what good is it to just say you love someone? You have to actually meet that love, show and demonstrate your love by giving, right? Or doing something, demonstrate your love by an action. That faith without action is dead. And so they were saying, look, we love these people. And so Paul had to reroute, go the opposite direction, take the collection, bring it back to Jerusalem. And it shows uh, a couple of things. One, it shows the love of, of the church. Even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a very trying time for the church, they gave out of, uh, uh, they gave out of abundance, out of the place of their, uh, out of their need, they gave. What a wonderful, amazing thing. Don't miss those details. And even in uh, Paul, even too, he just, just seeing his heart, he wasn't, he wasn't always just, uh, he was on the go. He was rushed, it seems like, but he was in tune with the will of God. Let's not just rush through life. Slow down, right? Uh, pay attention to the needs around you. There are lots of them. Paul desires uh, to get to Rome, but also remember, he, get, he wants to go to Spain too. He wants to get to places that no man has laid a foundation. Romans 15, verse 20 and 24, it says, and, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation. As it was written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions. And since I had been, I had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. So his ultimate def- destination was not Rome. And all right, I'll hang my hat on that. He's like, I just got to keep going, keep going, keep going. Why? Because it says in Corinthians, he's compelled by love. And I think, you know, when, when you hear stuff like that, it's very easy just to, okay, he's compelled by love, he's compelled by love, he's compelled to preach the gospel. But pause and ask yourself, are you also compelled by love? Or do you just do things because simply we do things as a church? Do you go out on outreaches because that's just what we do? There is a command in scripture to do it. But as we've said before, we've got to be motivated by the highest motivation, they say in scripture, which is love. And when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, I'm ready to go again. I love Paul's heart. And I'm challenged by the life of Paul. I'm challenged by him. He's the hero of the New Testament, besides Jesus, of course. And these next, really, when you think about it, in total, it'll probably be three years by the time we go through the book of Acts and the Gospel of Mark all together. And 
we will see the two heroes of the faith. It's amazing. And you know what? Instead of trying to be like them in their own strength, submit to the spirit and allow the spirit to form that kind of love in you. Romans 1, 10 through 11, it says again, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. His companions did, and he was writing to them. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Paul's longing is to see churches strengthened. And when, if we were, if God were to open up, I, as I was talking to one of the Italians there, uh, he, you know, he, one of the things he was, uh, on Thursday, I was talking to him through um, Zoom, and one of the things, he was watching his son play soccer as we were talking, I was like, I love that. And um, his name is Johnny Gravino. You like that? I do. I, I, <laughs> two Johnnies talking about Italy together, it's wonderful. But... When, you know, as I, was, as I was hearing his heart, uh, one of the things he says, he's like, by far, you need to write a book about sending people. I, I've never heard, he goes to the same school I do out in Los Angeles, but he, he, one of the things he says, I've never heard people send that many people overseas or, or domestically. I've never heard that. You need to write a book about that. I said, I don't know what I would write. It'd be, I, I suppose I'd have to have 140 pages to make a book. You know, you've got to have a certain amount of pages. And then just somewhere in the middle, it's all be white pages, and somewhere in the middle, I just put Matthew 28 in there. I mean, because what else? What else? <laughs> it's not me. It's not us. It's the Lord, right? It's the Lord. And he says to go. I suppose I could put Acts 1-8 in there too as well. But beyond that, I mean, they just, we're just seeing the book of Acts come alive. Why? Because they obeyed the Great Commission and the Lord's mandate to go to the nations. And that's it. And we just want to partner with people who are like-minded in that. Well then, Paul, not only that, but he sent into Macedonia Timothy and Erastus to stay in Asia. And Paul stayed in Asia for a while. And so here's the context. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, he says, I will remain in Ephesus, he's talking about now, until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries there now he's talking about acts 9 uh, ephesians 19 so the adversaries in acts 19 is the time is around may because pentecost was around may we just celebrated that i think was it last week right or two weeks ago it was about two weeks ago i don't remember now it was either last week or two weeks ago but the, the it was the time of the festival of um Artemis, or Artemis, and she, it was the, the statue of Diana or uh, uh, is, a, is a false god, and people came in from all over the god of fertility, the goddess of fertility, came from all over in during the time of May, about the time of Pentecost. And really, it's interesting that the devil always counterfeits what, the, what we should celebrate in the Lord, right? I mean, you see that with Christmas or Easter and, and so many other things. I mean, even the Reformation is October 31st, and of course, this Halloween's the same day. And so you see the same kind of stuff the enemy's still doing, counterfeiting and getting people's eyes off of the holidays that they should be really celebrating. But I'll tell you this, when the, wor- when the word of God prevails, you remember that in verse 20? There will be opposition from the enemy. 
It always comes. And I, I just want to, I'll read verse 23 and 27 to 27. Just read with me here, and then I'll give you guys a little bit of context because it's important setting this up to where, uh, what the true meaning of the text is and where the Lord wants to highlight this morning. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. In other words, it was a big thing. It was a big disturbance. And the way, of course, you know from last week, the way just means the way, the truth, and the life. It's Jesus being, uh, uh, saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life. It's, the way just means the Christian church. So people were coming against the church because they were exposing lies and they were speaking truth. And for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made sh- silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, it's a huge business. These gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear not only in Ephesus, but also almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute, but Also, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and all the world worship will be, will will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now, the temple was about 127 pillars and 60 feet high. This thing was bigger than the the Parthenon in, uh, uh, in, where is it, In, in Athens, Greece. This thing was huge. Everybody came from all over. Everyone knew this was, this was the largest cult during that time. It was the biggest, I guess, an enemy of Christianity at the time, besides probably Judaism. But it was considered the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. So this is a big deal. And the rich, they, in fact, archaeologists have found these little shrines. So Demetrius was making these little shrines, and they would hide them in their, in their yards and, uh, and put them in different spots. I mean, you see this before, you know, people having statues of different things in their houses and, uh, that belong to the, these, these cults. And so what happened was the rich would buy the clay ones, terracotta. Uh, they would find those in the, in the ground. In fact, they can't find the silver ones, but archaeologists have been digging up uh, the, the ones made out of clay, um, even today they find them. And so it's pretty awesome. I love when archaeology finds things like this. It just, again, I believe the Bible, but it's, also, uh, it's wonderful when, they, when these things are uncovered to affirm the truth of Scripture. But the rich would buy the silver and the poor would buy the clay ones and they would hide them in their homes and they'd be reminded to pray to the goddess Diana. And Demetrius was making a massive business out of this. In fact, his whole business was based on lies. Does that sound familiar today? When, when businesses are threatened that are based on lies, all hell breaks loose. And he was alarmed because the truth of the gospel was spreading rapidly. There was a... The whole business was, he, they, they had to keep the lie to keep telling people this is the true religion because they were making money off of them. There was a level of control over the people. And of course, you know, there's no such thing as idols. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 through 6, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. 
This should bring you great comfort, especially if you go overseas where there's so much idolatry. I remember this was our key passage when we stayed right next to you. In fact, our houses in Japan were right on the temple grounds. I mean, the window, like you could touch your hand and put it on the temple ground and you could hear the, the sounds and the chants and the music and smell the incense. And really, that didn't bother me at all because Paul said, there is no such thing as an idol. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, small g, small l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him in one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things, and we exist through him. We don't ever have to be threatened by other gods, small g, right? We could go anywhere in the world. One of the things I can't stand is when people say things like, we got to, you know, we got to do, we got to go through all this Christian acrobats and getting through the, uh, uh, going to a country, we got to figure out, all right, well, is, is you know, if, if all of a sudden, let's just say some Buddhist uh, through their idol and it somehow went through the window and onto the person's desk uh, in our room and it just sat there and somebody, you know, maybe had a bad dream or something like that and they woke up and said, well, you know, the reason why I had a bad dream is because someone threw their idol in my room. And what happens is you go through all these Christian acrobats these kind of like, you have to go through all these incantations. You have to cast out all these curses and it's never enough, right? Because maybe perhaps an atheist owned your house before. Now what do you do? Or perhaps it was a Mormon or a Buddhist. If we understand that these small g gods have no power over God, and John, 1 John even said, greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. So what is our fret? We could go anywhere and not worry about their idols made of silver or clay. You remember what happened to the God of Dagon? Exactly. It's interesting, it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you, you turn to God from idols. Ultimately, that's really what happens when you come to Christ, right? Maybe you turn from the God of self. Most of us have, right? It's not so much that we have these idols. Of course, it could be sports or all these other things in our life, you know, sex or power or money. And these are things we always continue to fight against, as even as Christians. But we certainly don't have to be afraid of some African artifact that somehow lands in our house. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff because it's, even though it's real, I mean, I've even heard of uh, even... Uh, you know, orphans coming into people's houses from Africa or China or different places like that. And, you know, the kid acts up and, and all Russia and these kids act up and they're saying it's because they, it's because they have a curse on them. What do you do now? Yell at your kid? Try to cast off all these things off of them? No, Adoption is a very powerful thing, by the way. God has adopted us in 
to the family. And when we go from darkness into the family, what happens? We become his and he is the big God over our lives. He's father. It's the same thing if you were to adopt a kid. You don't have to go through all these, all the motions to try to get the curse off. In fact, it says in Galatians that every, anyone who dies on a tree is cursed and Jesus took our curse and it is over. D.L. Moody, if you're, I mean, look, we could always talk about all the other gods that are overseas, but what about the gods in America? D.L. Moody said this, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America's full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. It's simple, isn't it? Martin Luther says this, to whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what it means, what is meant by small g God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and, tr- and trust your being, your whole being, that, I say, is really your God. It's whatever you go to first. Now, what happens when you go to that God first? The Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit living inside you says, come to me. Come to me. Don't go there. In fact, it says in Psalm 16 that if we go chase after other gods, our sorrows will multiply. How many of us have found that the hard way? Isn't it true? Every time we go after another God, our sorrows begin to multiply as a Christian. Now, as a non-believer, that's exciting. We may be punished as far as a natural consequence, but really for the believer, the consequence is just the wrestling, the, the uneasiness of going after another God. R.C. Sproul says this, when Paul preached the gospel, a conflict always arose from the confrontation between the truth of Christ and the false doctrine of idolatry. John Calvin tells us that in his institutes, his major work, that the heart of every human being is an idol factory. We're constantly making new ones, new images of Artemis, right? Sometimes we could look at this passage and be like, oh, it's for another time. You know, it's not, it's not relevant to me, really. Take out your iPhone. Take out your Android. It's all over the place. How about your mind? Your whole, your, your, just your mind alone can be an idol, your comfort zone, your off limits of God. Stay away as I think through this, as I have fantasies or whatever else might be, Right? Those are idols. If they bring you every, any level of comfort, as little as it might be. We are by nature inventors, craftsmen who create for ourselves idols as substitutes for the living God. He also says this, every human being knows the living God because God has clearly revealed his character to everyone. Yet every person by nature represses that knowledge of the truth, right? We read that often in Romans 1. They suppress the true God and exchange it for a lie, which is in this case, in Ephesians 19, by creating idols as substitutes for the true God. That's what they did in Ephesus. And now they built a whole economy around it. That propensity does not end with 
conversion, that strong drive within us to replace the living God with something more palatable to us remains even in the hearts and minds of the converted. Guys, this passage has to do with us. Not some foreign land. They're like, yeah, they were, can't believe they were making statues. Today, we do not fashion idols from stone, but we do fashion idols from ideas. Amen? Money and power ultimately drive this country. It also drives the church at times, right? It drives the world. Money and power is everything. Whether they put religion as a front or some ideology as a front or Black Lives Matter as a front, it's all money and power. And behind it is ideology. Like we talked about last week with critical race theory. It is a farce. It lures people in, ultimately, ironically, to oppress those who are outside of their cult. You see that the the word, uh, I'm sorry, the gospel preaching plus changed lives will always, always intimidate the evil worldly system. Amen. Young one has some wisdom. Try confronting your boss with the truth. See what happens on Monday morning. Try confronting any of the, uh, the religions that knock on your door. In fact, someone just came up to me today and just told me, they said, oh, this, this, there's a new cult out there that uh, supposedly the, that these, there's a group of people. We saw them in Washington, D.C. I don't actually know what they're called, but I, I know that they, that, that they believe they're the true Israel and everyone else Everyone has oppressed them. And so guess what they're doing? They want to oppress others. It's a false religion. It's always about power. It always is about money. And those on top of the pyramid scheme, as we talked about last week, on top of the Ponzi scheme, always win and they oppress others. But how they get there is they said they're the ones oppressed, right? That's how it works. Unfortunately, many are blind to that. I will say this also, that the church did not riot or protest the streets to get what they wanted in the first century. Amen? You don't see that. That is not the way to change societies. They also didn't use political power, social agendas, or critical theories to transform societies. Did they? No. That's not what our Lord called us to do. What did he call us to do? Preach the truth. Preach the truth. Expose the lies. You know, and it's interesting uh, that uh, he, how does, how does the world, okay, if we're preaching the truth and we're actually burning our magic book, so to speak, right? That's incredibly intimidating, that will cause a red flag somewhere, right? How does the world then put us back in their so-called order? You understand what I'm saying? 
How did they put us back in order or in line, so to speak? Because the name of the game is control, money, power, all those things. So how, if we're winning and people are uh, coming to the truth, the blinders are being taken off, the church is growing, that is incredibly intimidating from a, even a earthly standpoint, there's numbers, you know, you're, you're going against the ideology, you're hurting business per se. Can you imagine the, all the people that would be up in arms at the, in Las Vegas, it would be a desert wasteland if people decided to stop gambling and having illegal sex. Can you imagine what would happen? You better believe there would be a riot. So what do they do to bring us back into control? I'll tell you what they do. Lies, deception, and manipulation is the key weapons of the enemy. They see the city's finances were in danger. Hear how just ridiculous this sounds. It says, these, he, verse 25, these he gathered together with the workman, Demetrius, with similar trades and said, men, listen, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but also all of Asia, these guys are ruining our pockets. Begin to speak up and speak the truth, and I guarantee you that you're going to start hurting someone's pocketbook. And when you do, it's game over, right? Not only that, but then they also used as one, uh, one, one uh, coined it this way, which I thought was good. Religious piety becomes a thin cloak of personal economic interests. Isn't it interesting that any just use uh, uh, their, their financial, like, guys, you're going to ruin our business and many people have jobs here and you're going to ruin the city, you're going to take it down, but also you're going to ruin our religion. Well, guess what? Nobody today worships Artemis. Nobody. You'd have to be a fool to resurrect that statue again. There's no need. I mean, the enemy has resurrected many of, but they're different kinds today. It's the feminist movement. It's critical race theory, or other theories. It's many different kinds of ideologies today that are resurrected. They make a lot of money. You might be saying, well, how does, how does abortion make money? Planned parenthood. How does critical race make a lot of money? Black lives matter. They're making a fortune off of people, off of killing babies and ruining people's lives. Speak about that next time at your lunch break. Also, it's funny too, in this verse, it says, there is a danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute. And, and I've said that with the, they're ruining this religion, but also you will defame us. We like the fame. We like the power. We like people coming in May from all over. We like the money. We don't know what to do with ourselves. If you ruin this business, we're done. People don't like that. 
They don't like you taking away their power, their lies. They don't like you exposing that. Yet God said he would take care of his people, wouldn't he? Matthew 6 is clear. God will always take care of his people. You never have to worry. And plus, I think this probably says it all, Mark 8, 36 to 37. So for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. You will perish for all of eternity if you give in to the world system. You're fighting against God. You know, isn't it interesting? You look back at that verse in Acts chapter 5 where it says, hey, we're going to obey God rather than man. I mean, yeah, they took a beating. You always will. You're going to take a beating. But isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, there are millions that are worshiping Jesus and nobody is worshiping the goddess of Diana. Nobody is worshiping these false gods. It's amazing to me, actually, that I would rather be on God's side and not pander, as I see so many churches doing today. They pander, pander, pander just to keep the people in. Why? Because I'll be frank with you, they want money. Money. Reason why Kenneth Copeland stood up there saying, COVID 19? What a fool. You think COVID 19 went anywhere? Newsflash, it's still here. These people want money. The reason why it was the saddest story to watch at a camera angle this guy who preached in front of millions of people stood there to preach in front of empty seats blowing at a virus. By the way, I don't think blowing at people who were the two or three people who were sitting in the front is the best idea during COVID-19. Doesn't make much sense, does it? It's amazing how God is dismantling people's so-called fame in the Christian world, right? We see it in the news all the time. Little by little, the musical chairs are just, they keep happening. It's almost like weekly. We see another one bite the dust. And the reality is, not that we should be excited about that, but we should be warned that if we don't hold on to the truth and we continue to pander or compromise, we will also land in a ditch as well. And ultimately, really be no good and no light or salt. And by the way, for people that want to say, John, you shouldn't mention names, Paul did so as well. Verse 28, when they heard this and were filled with rage, isn't it interesting, rage. This is when the people don't get what they want. They began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of Ephesus, or of the Ephesians, The city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. They knew better. He was going to die there if they let him in. You don't go into an angry mob into a theater and think you're going to survive that back in that day. 
Also, some of the Asiarchs who are friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose and from them all as they shouted, for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were crazy. They went whacked. Okay, let me, what do, what do, uh, ultimately, what do riots produce? We know the purpose of them is when you expose the lies, that's how they get produced. When you expose a lie, when you speak the truth, there's a riot, Right? But what do they ultimately produce? They ultimately produce rage. As you saw here, they cried out, great is Artemis of, Ephes- of, of Ephesus. And they produce a fury of emotions and violence, which is not the way of the Lord. In Acts 7, look at how they reacted to Stephen's sermon. sermon. They gnashed their teeth at him and were cut to the heart because of the truth, right? Remember that? In Acts 16, the mob tore their clothes and beat Paul and Silas, and then put them in prison. People aren't nice when you expose their lies, right? People get angry when you expose their hypocrisy, their sin, their false religion, their evil deeds, or their worldview. And that's what God's called us to do. One, one pastor said it this way, spiritual warfare is, a, is an ideological conflict fought in the mind of a, by assaulting the proud fortresses of ideas that sinners erect against the truth. That's ultimately what spiritual warfare is. It is not being like, ah, you know, it's just, what in the world's going on here? Nobody cares about the theatrics. But people right now today, because the canon of scripture is done, it's complete, it's the word of God is able to transform our lives. The war is against truth, church. It's against truth. It's against ideologies that make its way up against God. They're fortresses, they're mountains. It's almost as like they're building a a new cult arises on the scene. And by the way, we should never be intimidated of cults because we know how they end. We know how they end. There's always going to be a new cult. If we live for another hundred years, which I won't be here, but, and I don't, I don't think many of you got, maybe your, some of your newborns will, uh, Lord willing. I hope Jesus comes back by then. How many say amen for that? But, but if they were, there would be many new cults because the enemy is always trying to find different ways to counterfeit the gospel, right? Always. And so, but we know how they all end in the last so many years, hundreds of years. The second thing that riot produces is not only rage, but confusion. Isn't it interesting? They grab the companions of Paul and they, they put them into the theater, put them up front. Paul, they tried to get Paul out of the way because they protected him. And these, these so-called Asiarchs, if you'll see a little footnote at the bottom of your page in your Bible, if you have a reference Bible, 
But one of the things, they were, they were wealthy families. This is interesting. They were put in these different Roman cities. They promoted the Roman emperor. They promoted uh, emperor worship. You mean to tell me these rich and famous, powerful people were defending Paul? Why? That is kind of bizarre. Well, you might notice that even today in the news or today that it's like there are people that do stand up for Christians, right? In fact, there's a lot of conservatives. They might say well, under the banner of, well, we, we just want free speech because it benefits both. Now, these Asiarchs, the reason why they probably were defending Paul is because they realized in their legalistic minds, they were saying, look, you can't do this riot thing because you're going to make Rome very angry and they're going to come in and take their, our privileges away. And by the way, we know how things work. You have to go to court. You cannot do this kind of, they were the, they were the righteous ones, so to speak, the conservatives ones. And they were saying, look, leave this guy alone. He's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Just leave him alone. It's not that they were, uh, uh, believed the truth. There will be many people that will not be our allies per se, that will defend the truth because they maybe want to uh, preserve their company or their name or their fortune or whatever reputation. Does that make sense? Don't be fooled that they're like supposed Christians. They will perish like the rest of them. But the reality is, is that they can help us. <laughs> I mean... And they help Paul stay alive. But I also want to draw to your attention an interesting thing that you see today in the news is there was absolute complete chaos in the theater. Some didn't even know why they were yelling. It's a term today called mob psychology. In other words, the mob's influence can influence people or a crowd and, 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 and force them into some sort of mentality. You see it all the time, right? In fact, many people were trying to get me to protest this summer, last summer, and I refused to do it because I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says you can do that. But many were being uh, picked up and, and swept up into the ideologies of the world, the social agendas, that, by the way, never fix anything. You tell me the last time a political spirit converted a man. When was the last time the social agenda of the world actually brought about revival? Tell me. It never did, and it never will. The only thing, to trans only thing that will transform a human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will. And certainly riots will never do that or even protests. It's speaking the truth. Can you imagine if every church on the planet would speak the truth? We wouldn't have, we would, there would be no need to go to the civil squares to try to hash things out. We'd have so many people believing the truth. We'd have an army of people that put their feet, foot down and say, enough's enough, We're, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, and we would see transformation happen. But unfortunately, we have a weak church, a very weak church today. The third thing that you see that the riot produces is stubbornness. People don't change, as I said. They put Alexander for, before, poor guy Alexander. I mean, if you're reading this right, I mean, 
they thought him being Jewish, the Jews put like, hey, look, we'll put this Jewish guy forward. We just want them to know, hey, we don't associate with these Christians because, you know, they want to protect themselves. They don't, the Jews don't want to be swept up in this riot. I mean, they don't want to be killed in the, the theater. So they put poor Alexander, some political scheme, they just put this guy forward and they're like, oh, he'll be fine. He'll, he'll prove that we're Jews and we're not like the Christians and we'll move forward. But, you know, it backfired on him and said, no, 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 you're exactly like the Christians. Because you have to remember anybody that is not for the world is against the world. Do you know that, church? There's no middle ground with the world, and there's no middle ground with Jesus. You cannot serve both him and the manna. Money, power, it's impossible. Before we close, uh, I just have a few more passages here. In verse 35, it says, After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? It was a meteor, meteorite that came down. They thought it was supernatural. This stuff happens all the time. And then they, they encapsulated the meteor and they felt like this was Zeus throwing down the goddess of Diana, and they began to worship her as the god of fertility. So then, so since these are undeniable facts, he says, isn't it interesting? These are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples or blasphemers of, of our goddess. They were sticking up for the Christians, but they weren't sticking up for the Christians in, in the way that you would think. And then he says in verse 38, so then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsulars are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. Even these guys had sense realizing this is not going to be solved this way. since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. They're going to take all of our privileges away if Rome knows this. We better stop. We don't care for the truth. It's not a matter of truth. It's a matter of power and money, and we don't want that taken away. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And I, I, I want to close on this I guess you could say warning again, or at least just help us understand as a church what is actually happening in the world today. I've, I've heard this as feedback, and I, and I, I hear this in today's messages. Uh, I keep tabs on kind of what's going on in the church today and whatnot, and so many are saying the same thing. You know, religion, religion divides. You know, they, they, they quote, maybe just, maybe not even out of context per se, but just they're only, they only quote one side of the spectrum. You know, Isaiah 9, 6 says something like this. Isn't, you know, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. Also in Romans twelve eighteen, I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's true. But guys, I want to say this, that being divided over truth 
is not the same as being divisive. I want to be clear on that. When it is time for the church to take a stand in truth against culture and the ideologies and false religion, we are to take a stand. There always will be someone out there that says, but Romans 12. And then I say, but this, Matthew 10, 34 to 35, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus came to destroy the family. Maybe never heard it that way. But when we unify with the truth, he unifies family the way, remember he says, those who do the will of my father and mother are my family, right? Amen? Your family's here. This is your family. Treat them right. And yes, if you can, be at peace with all men, of course. I mean, that's, that's, that's the heart of a believer. We, he is the prince of peace. I mean, but mainly what that passage means is he brought peace between us and God. That's the Prince of Peace. He, he came, we were an, 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 an alienated from, from the Lord, from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We were alienated from the God of the universe, the creator of everything. We were separated at birth. We are the children of the devil, as we often say, and it says in Ephesians 2. We needed reconciliation, and the Prince of Peace came to bring us to the Father, to bring us peace with God, and you have that through Jesus Christ, right? But make no mistake, do not twist the scriptures. Do not buy into false unity, as you see with these famous charlatans on TV trying to unify the church under some sort of false ideal. It's false, guys. It's not okay. It'll destroy the church. It destroys people. But we need to unify in the truth. The truth will set us free, right? Didn't say unity will set us free, amen? Amen. He said the truth will set us free. There's false unity in the world, we see that today. But I'll tell you what, when the one that grieves me the most is there is a false unity in the church. Do not buy into it. Do not buy into that. And people will think, well, you're divisive. You are wrong. Why do I know that? Because we're not trying to be devices for divisive sake. We're not trying to pick a fight just for picking a fight's sake. The church is called to feed the flock, defend the flock. That is what God has called us to do as the church. Amen? And you want uh, a, a pastor with a spine, elders with a spine. They're able to speak the truth in love. Of course, it's in love. There's no truth without love. How silly is that? I've never heard of something like that. If you have tr- real, true truth, it includes love. If you have love, it includes truth. You can't separate the two, as we often said this whole year. And you might be thinking, well... Why do we, you know, I mean, we, there's so many different ways to apply this truth this morning. 
But I want to I wanna turn your attention to the voiceless today, the true victim today. You hear so many things about oppressed. I'll show you who's oppressed. One pastor says this, the bags of babies are found by trash compactors, as we all know. Yet on the other side of this, a wounded American eagle was found recently in Maryland and rushed to the emergency room for treatment. However, it died and a $5,000 reward was offered for, the, offered for the arrest of whoever injured it. It is illegal to ship a pregnant lobster. It's a $1,000 fine. In the state of Massachusetts, there is an anti-cruelty law that makes it illegal to award a goldfish as a prize. Why? This is what it says. Quote, to protect the tendency to dull humanitarian feelings and to corrupt morals of those who abuse them. End quote. The same people who want to save a goldfish are leading the parade usually to kill the babies. Liberals are murderers. They're murderers. What is at stake with respect to Christianity is not religion. Understand that. It is human life. Human life is defined by the creator of human life. Obvious. At stake is truth that is rooted and grounded in the character of God himself, which is worth dying for. We claim to love peace and personal rights, but how will that hold up on the day of judgment? How will it? We sit back and allow millions of unborn babies to be destroyed in the wombs of women in the name of freedom and personal preference. And we think it's fine. Why aren't we being, why aren't we being killed and fighting against that? That is what God will ask us on judgment day. No woman has been given a right by God to do what is wrong. Amen. And no human being has ever been given the right by God to murder another human being. That's absurd. A woman's rights end where a baby's rights begin. And that's a conception. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has been immovable on this point. I mean, it's obvious. For years, it was obvious. Psalm 139, I mean, you could go on and on and on. There was no debate or discussion, were there? If you look at church history, there wasn't much. One of the most basic principles of Christianity is the sanctity of human life. Yet we have been willing to see that it is traded, when it's traded in for the sanctity of human peace and comfort. And here it is. That is why we are not being dragged in the amphitheater. Now this can work for anything that we're trying to stick up for the truth, okay? Nobody is yelling at us, are they? When's the last time you've been yelled at? Because you stuck up for the truth. I'm not saying, again, to provoke it. I'm just saying when you speak the truth and expose lies, there will be a riot. Nobody is yelling at us because they do not have any reason to. That is not right. And we should be willing to be completely dedicated to the truth of God for the welfare of people, not for religion. The truth of God is in you. And it is for your neighbor It is for the unbeliever down the street who breathes the very life of God, the God of grace. When God's sanctity is tainted, human sanctity goes with it. 
We are living not in a post-Christian or neo-pagan era. We are, all not, we are living in a neo-barbarian culture. There's nothing different, guys, about then and today. It's the same. It is every bit as barbarian as it was in Asia Minor when Paul took the gospel there in his day. That is why we need Christians today who are sold out, who believe the Christian faith and are committed to the truth of Christ and will not say great Artemis of Ephesians, but will say great is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God and compromise with no one, end quote. Amen? Love the truth. It sets us free. Doesn't it? And I want to leave you with this. It's the last quote before I pray. I think I came across it last minute here, but I thought it was worth understanding what this whole passage really ultimately means. We need to stand for the truth. John Calvin in his day said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. And I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. There's nothing different, is there? That was written in the 1500s. The dog's still barking. And what are we doing? Are we defending the truth? Is that who we are? Is that who you are? Are you one who will defend the truth at all costs? Again, not to pick a fight. I'm not asking this church to do that. That's not what we want to be called, named for or known for. We, rather, we want to be known for our love. That's what Jesus said, but that includes the truth. That includes us caring for people who are uh, voiceless. But not only voiceless, but also people who are oppressed by the enemy. Spiritual oppression. Who are in bondage to lies. And the only way they break out of lies, guys, let's be honest, is the truth. Amen? All right, let's pray. Why don't we stand to our feet and pray? Father, we thank you for...